Good morning to everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn with me for the last time to the book of James. This is it, folks. All good things must come to an end. And it is with very mixed feelings that we draw our study of the book of James to a close this day. On the one hand, I'm thrilled to be moving on to something else. Uh, The Bible is a big book. It is a deep book. Lots of treasures therein. And so I am anxious to get on to the next treasure and to handle it and to see what the Lord has in store for us. On the other hand, uh, James has been part of my life now for close to a year, part of my weekly cycle, if not my daily cycle, And so it is like bidding farewell to a close friend. I'm getting a little misty-eyed. Just give me a moment. But again, James has served us well. And we have certainly appreciated all that the Lord has shown us from this portion of his word. But yes, it is with mixed feelings that we say goodbye. When we began, and I have repeated these on at least a couple of occasions, I shared with you some prayer requests. And so we have been praying as we've made our way through this book. We have firstly asked God to use James to save us from free grace theology. According to free grace theology, faith is a singular act contained to a punctiliar, that is a specific moment of time by which we receive the justifying grace of God. In other words, it is a simple decision. It is a decision you make confined to, defined by a specific moment in time. What happens after that momentary decision is completely irrelevant. Uh, James disagrees with that. James disagrees with that in the strongest terms possible. He makes it clear that faith makes us one with Christ. By virtue of our union with Christ, we come alive. And where there is life, there is always, always, always fruit. Hence, faith without works is, it is dead. And I pray, I trust, that perhaps the Lord has preserved someone here among us has saved us from free grace theology. Second prayer request has been this. We've asked God to use James to convince us as to the nature of true religion, not what passes for religion in our day. James argues that knowledge, head knowledge, always leads to life transformation. James argues that our creed is only as compelling as our conduct. There is an inextricable link between what we believe and how we live. A link, indissoluble connection between our doctrine and our practice. True religion, in a nutshell, is always visible. That is James' contention. Thirdly, we have asked God, to use James to show us what it means to live under grace. James gives us 59 commands 
in 108 verses. Well, that seems a little legalistic. Nothing could be further from the truth. James is showing us what the gospel looks like in action. His goal is to demonstrate the transforming effect of what it means to live in the sight daily of Christ's infinite merit. Fourthly, we have asked God to use James to challenge us to evaluate our lives. He takes aim, doesn't he? You'll recall, he takes aim at the sins of the tongue. Uh, Every chapter, he unmasks the sin of showing partiality, favoritism, of prejudice, of hoarding wealth, of stirring contention. He shows how selfish ambition lurks at the bottom of our hearts and surfaces to express itself in all sorts of diabolical ways. And I have stated it on umpteen occasions. Here it is again. James will either change you or condemn you. There's no middle road. It is one or the other. We've arrived at the book and we have been changed or we stand condemned. Only two options before us. The fifth prayer request is this. We have asked God to use James to teach us much practical wisdom because it is, in effect, this book is, in effect, a New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. Like a flower of the field, the rich man will fade away. Very proverbial. The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. One of my favorites, you are a mist. You are a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Pithy statements oozing with great biblical truth. And I pray the Lord has taught us what it means to fear his name. And how the fear of the Lord is made manifest in our conduct, practical wisdom. Five prayer requests. And I trust, I expect, that the Lord has answered these in some ways among us. And I have every expectation that he will continue to answer them as we move forward as individuals, as families, and as a local church. Now, here you go. There's a sixth prayer request. I have not shared it with you till this point, but something I have been praying off and on periodically for the past eight, nine months, back when we began this study in September, here it is. I have been asking God to use this book to lead the wanderer home. I have been asking God to use this book, James, to lead, to direct, The wanderer home. Why have I been praying that? Because of what we now read right at the end of the book, chapter 5, the only verses we have remaining, 19 and 20, here is the word of the Lord. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, right off, boom, 
that should strike you as fascinating, that James would end his book this way. You know, at the end of the service, I'm going to announce a benediction, aren't I? And where do I go to find those benedictions? To the end of a book's New Testament books in the Bible. Because it's at the end of these books that there is always this conclusion, a conclusion taking the form of a, a benediction, the Lord's blessing. No such thing here in the book of James. James ends on a very different note. And I can only assume from this, and I think I'm quite right, I can only assume from this that insofar as James is concerned, in these final verses, we have a summary statement, a glimpse into what has been his chief end all along in writing. Going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, that as he sat down, he took his little quill or whatever it was he was writing with back in those days, dipped it in ink or whatever he dipped it in, then they had, there he had the parchment, and he began to write. He had an audience in view, and he undoubtedly knew these people, intimately acquainted with them, well-versed as to what was going on in their lives, their struggles, their challenges, their obstacles, etc., etc. And as he perused, surveyed the land and took stock of their lives, he seems to be struck with this threat, present danger, that some among them have, or at the very least are presently tempted to wander from the faith. And he writes to prevent that very thing. And now it is as if, as he draws it all to a conclusion, he brings it all to a head. And this has been, in effect, he says, my objective all along, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Ten things I want you to get. You've got your sermon notes there in front of you. There you go. They're a real treat this morning. Ten blanks. Good luck with that. We're going to move quickly through these, but ten things I want to mention, ten points I want to make concerning wandering, wandering. And I pray the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord will truly bless these to us this day. Number one, point number one, here we go. We you and me, we are in danger of wandering. We're in danger of wandering. Uh, where do I get that from? I get that from the opening statement in verse 19. My brothers. James is not writing to unbelievers. He is not writing to the world. It is true that the world has wandered. Unbelievers have strayed. You think of that great statement in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. That is an indictment directed at humanity as a whole. That by virtue of the fall, that is Adam's and Eve's fall, way back in the beginning, the Garden of Eden, there has been ever since that moment a separation unbelievable, inconceivable alienation between God and his creatures. And so, yes, it is true, I do not deny it, that this is a very apt 
description of the unbeliever as he finds himself, finds herself in his spiritual predicament before a holy God. He has wandered. But James isn't talking to unbelievers. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders, he is raising a possibility. And he is acknowledging that from the midst of the local church, that from the midst of those who profess the name of Christ, that from the midst of those who would claim to be Christians, there is this real possibility that some might very well wander among his audience. And I dare say the threat has remained unchanged throughout the centuries, and it remains a threat in our day, and it is a very real possibility here at Grace Community Church. We are in danger of wandering. The second point I want to make is this. We wander when we depart from the truth. That's what he says. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth. And so wandering, or if you prefer the word straying, implies there is a fixed point of reference. You can only wander from something that is fixed, right? And so it was a couple of months ago, I think it was, maybe three or four months ago now, a young woman, I think she was from Texas, Grand Canyon, do you remember this? Went for a little drive and um, lost for five days in the Grand Canyon. Thankfully, God's common grace, she had plenty of water with her. And she spelt out the word help with stones on the ground. Her cell phone would not work. After five days, she realized, I've got to do something. So she walked up a hill or something where she could get up high and get the signal Dial 911, they were able to pinpoint her location, and in they went, and they rescued her. Happy ending. How did it happen? She's in a car. She took a road that was not a road. She wandered from the way. She wandered from a fixed point. That is the precise point that James is making here. There is a fixed reference point. It is the truth. When we wander, we depart from the truth. Now, do not make a mistake here. It is a simple mistake to make, and it is this. It is to restrict the meaning of this word truth to a series of propositional statements. In the first instance, James is not saying, look, at Grace Community Church, you have a constitution and bylaws and a doctrinal statement. Well, do not wander from that doctrinal statement, the truth. I say in the first instance, because to a certain degree, that is precisely what he is saying. But we miss the real severity of this point if we fail to remind ourselves of what the Lord Jesus Christ himself says, I am the way, I am the truth. Therefore, to wander is to depart from the truth. It isn't to depart simply from a bunch of propositional facts or statements or doctrines, although it does include that. No, in the first instance, it is to depart from a person. It is to wave goodbye from a person. 
It is to walk away from, stray from, wander from the only point of reference God Almighty has given us, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The third point I want to make is this. Wandering is moral. Moral. Before it is ever intellectual. Wandering is moral before it is ever intellectual. Now, pray tell, what do I mean by that? Well, here we go. Imagine this scenario. A young man, 28 years of age, first number that popped into my head. There he is, raised in a Christian home. And uh, attended Sunday school attends corporate worship in the church, made a profession of faith when he was 14 years of age, baptized publicly when he was 17 years of age, involved in VBS, involved in uh, worship team, involved in mission trips or whatever. 28 years of age, suddenly he's not as frequent as he once was in his attendance at public worship. And you get a hold of him and you ask him, what's up, what's going on? And his response is, well, I'm, I'm just not sh- that sure we can be so dogmatic about these things anymore. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm not so sure that the Bible is reliable. I'm not convinced Jesus is the only way of salvation. Okay, what is the first question you should ask him? What have you been up to? That is the very first question. Don't buy into this nonsense that I have analyzed things intellectually and I am struggling struggling on an intellectual level with the veracity of the Christian faith. Do not allow for it. The moral always precedes the intellectual. I guarantee you that something has captured that young man's affection. I guarantee it that something else is now reigning supreme in his life. It might be lust. It might be greed. It might be selfish ambition. The list is endless. It might be any number of things. But something has drawn the affections of the heart away from the truth. A person, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is now inventing intellectual excuses to hide his moral reasons. Oh, please get this and please get it good because we often fail here and we fail people in how we minister to them and counsel them because we will come in on the intellectual level. Oh, oh, you want to talk about these things intellectually. You want to talk about the arguments for the faith. I do not deny that there is most certainly a place for that. But do not be misled. Please remove the blinders. Moral darkness always precedes intellectual darkness. That's the fourth thing, third thing I want to say. Wandering is moral before it is intellectual. The fourth is this. Secret wandering is particularly dangerous. Secret wandering. It is possible to wander from the truth without ever leaving the church. What did I just say? I said it is possible. It is possible to wander from the truth without ever leaving, actually leaving 
the church. It happens when we relegate the Christian faith to a simple series of external practices. And for all intents and purposes, there we are in body. And everything seems to be going along as normal. And we have stilled our disturbed conscience by adhering to a list of external observances. But really, insofar as the rest of the week goes, insofar as the reality, that is, the reality pertaining to the condition of our heart, we have wandered from the Lord Jesus Christ. I think James has that in view, that very real possibility in view every step of the way. You turn back with me to those key verses. Go back with me all the way to chapter 1. One last time, one more reminder as to the nature of true religion, living religion. And there in chapter 1, verse 26, James makes it clear. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. They might never ever leave the church, but they have wandered from the truth. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. A secret wanderer never concerns himself with matters of the heart. Tongue is a loose cannon. A secret wanderer never inconveniences himself with the plight of the afflicted. A secret wanderer never troubles himself with the pursuit of holiness. But there he might remain. There she might remain in the context of a local church adhering to a very simple list of external observances. And as long as I check these off, they reassure themselves with this fallacy, all is well with the soul, all the while in the inner recesses of the heart, they have wandered from the truth, wandered from the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the fifth thing I want to say. Wandering produces, not always, but almost always, Wandering produces discernible symptoms. Discernible symptoms. So hear the words of King David out of Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. Satan, we don't need to go into the nitty-gritty. But uh, Satan had preyed on David, had he not. And David had fallen in spectacular fashion. And while he remained in that condition, having wandered, having strayed, uh, he describes his state of soul again in, in these words, my bones wasting away, my strength dried up as the hand of the Lord weighed heavily upon his soul. Oh, when we wander, almost always, not in every case, there is some variation, but almost always, there will be discernible 
symptoms. Let me give you a few. Here's one. A wanderer will detach himself from others. Distance. Distance himself from others. Why? To avoid exposure. Why else? The distance will all of a sudden be there. There one moment, gone the next. The walls come up. The distance is placed between him and other, other believers to avoid exposure. Here's another symptom. The wanderer will always adopt a critical spirit to mask his own spiritual condition. It's the only way he can make himself feel good about himself. It is by criticizing others. Here's another symptom. The wanderer will assume a victim mentality in order to place himself beyond scrutiny. Well, you can't criticize me or call me to task if I'm a victim, because that wouldn't be very nice. And so he will always adopt a victim mentality. A wanderer, one more, is usually characterized by surliness, aloofness, and coldness. There are discernible symptoms. Here's the sixth point I want to make. Death is the result of wandering. Pick it up again in verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. What is the implication? I just stated it. Death is the result of wandering. Now, stay with me. Think it through. Follow it through. And pay careful attention to what I say and I do not say. Can a Christian wander? Yes, it's James' point. Can a Christian wander indefinitely? No. He cannot wander indefinitely. When a wanderer refuses to turn back, he reveals what he truly is. He reveals that he never ever knew the truth. He never, ever knew the Lord Jesus. Very sad. A couple of weeks ago, received word that a young man, well, he'd be well into his 30s now, but a young man I taught at Bible college back 2002, 15 years ago, uh, died suddenly in Western Canada. And um, while in Bible college, he, he derailed, and uh, the trajectory was set for his life. He stuck it out, left Bible college, but uh, certainly had wandered from the truth and strayed from the Lord Jesus, and that was the life uh, he had lived for the past 15 years, okay? Oh, I got to be careful. So Facebook lights up. And what are all the comments on Facebook? Well, at least he knew the Lord Jesus. At least he knew the Lord Jesus. At least he knew the Lord Jesus. Why? Free grace theology. At a punctiliar moment of time, when he was seven years old, he uttered a prayer. Well, he saved. Once saved, always saved. That kind of thinking is completely irreconcilable with the book of James. Faith is living. Faith is active. It is not an action. It is an attitude. 
by which we are made one with the Lord Jesus. We take hold of the Lord Jesus and we do not let go of the Lord Jesus. Yes, there is backsliding. Yes, there is wandering. Yes, it is entirely possible. But to deliberately wander and never come back testifies to the true condition of the soul. Is it possible that that young man is saved? I'm not his judge. And I would never dare pass judgment. But I can say this. There is absolutely no reason for me to think he was saved. Absolutely none. Wandering. Indefinite wandering leads to death. A perpetual state of wandering confirms that the professing believer, no matter how ardent his profession, does not know Jesus. He is on the broad road that leads to destruction. Oh, I know that's hard to say. And I, let me just back it up. I know in case any of my friends, it pertains to no one here, my friends back home, I don't know, someone might watch this on the video and say, well, I know what Stephen's talking about. And I posted that. I, I understand the intent. And I understand the good intention. Wanting to at least insert some sort of comfort in the midst of unimaginable sorrow. My friend, true comfort never comes from blatant error. It doesn't. The truth will set us free. And the only comfort is in the truth. And I know that is hard. That is a hard truth. It is. But we, we, dare, not, we dare not mess things up and cloud the gospel and what it means to be in living union and communion with our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be honest with what the Word of God says here. The danger, the danger when someone wanders is that they might wander perpetually and thereby reveal what they really are, ending up where? Death. Therefore, blessed that individual who gets after that person and is used by the Spirit of God to bring that sinner back from his wandering, thereby confirming that they are indeed a child of God. Their wandering was but temporary. Their wandering was but a season of carelessness. But please let's get this, and let's be very clear on it. Death is the result of wandering. Seventh point is this. Oh, it gets good in a couple more. Stay with me. It gets really good in a couple more. Number seven, we're to seek to turn back those who wander. We, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, it is our calling, it is our responsibility as Christians to be paying attention to our brothers and our sisters, and we are to seek to turn back those who wander. We are to seek to save them. A friend recently was, was telling me, uh, back in England, he was telling me of, uh, of, of something that happened a couple of years ago. He was swimming on the east coast of England, got out a little too far, and the tide got him. The tide in the, around the British Isles is just unbelievable. And uh, out, it pulled him out. And, uh, and further down the coast, brought him back in against pretty much a cliff's edge and banged him against that cliff, bruised and battered. He was finally able to get a hold of the cliff's edge and climb up to a ledge where he stood beyond the crashing waves below. There he is. 
And he said, thankfully, way back on the beach, there was an old soul way over there looking at him. He was looking at him. Out came the phone. A phone call was being made. The boat will come. Something's going to happen. Minutes later, it's the chopper. Royal Navy, search and rescue chopper, hovering up above. Down comes the line. There he is. And uh, this young man who comes down on the line looks at my friend and says, well, you're a silly boy, aren't you? You can call me whatever you want. I'm jumping, I'm hugging, and I'm holding on. Oh, rescued. Rescued from a most perilous condition and situation. That is what James is depicting here. It's not the realm of the physical, but the spiritual. You now have an individual, saved or not, well, we'll see. But he is wandering. Off she's gone. Well, our calling as Christians is to bring that sinner back to save his soul from death. Salvation. Oh, turning back a wanderer is one of the greatest callings that Scripture places, callings and responsibilities that Scripture places upon us. A small child, you imagine the scene. A small child is wandering toward the busy street, the deep pool, the cliff's edge. What do we do? Without thinking, we intervene. What James is describing is no different. We are not to wait for others to figure it out. Well, I'll add to this. You are not to wait for the elders to figure it out, because a lot of times we don't. And you most certainly are not to wait for me to figure it out. You're to get on your horse, giddy up, and get after them. It is your calling. It is your responsibility. That if you know of someone who is wandering, you are commissioned and you are called to do all that is within your ability to do, to seek to convey God's will by God's Spirit as revealed in God's Word to that person, to that individual. You know, it's a bit like an egg. I hope this works. Let's try it anyway. It's a bit like an egg. There you've got an egg. I don't know. You're you're standing. Stick with me. You're standing at the kitchen counter, all right? And for some reason, there's an egg on the, on the counter. And maybe your countertop wasn't built very well. There's a little bit of a slope, an incline to it. The egg starts rolling where? To the edge. Okay. It's much easier to do what? Grab that egg before it reaches the edge and move it to safety. Then what? Wait for the thing to fall over the edge hit the ground where it cracks and is now an oozing, messy mess. I fear far too many of us wait for the mess before we say anything. Far too many of us wait for the thing to be cracked and smashed, oozing on the floor before we speak up. What could have been prevented perhaps by God's sovereign grace six months earlier, a year earlier, two years earlier, it was just kind of left, let it go, You let it go, you let it go, off it rolls, hits the ground, smash. And then you start trying, or maybe you come to Brian, or you come to one of the elders, or you come to me, and what do you want to do? You want to put the egg back in the shell. Good luck with that. Apart from a miracle of sovereign grace. Sadly, that's what many of us do. We wait until there's the oozing mess on the floor. Oh, help me. Friends, back it up. Back it up at the first signs of trouble. At the first 
inkling that all is not well. We must love each other enough to speak into one another's lives and present this ever perilous, threatening danger of wandering. Number seven leads me to number eight. Here it is. Turning back a wanderer requires self-sacrifice. It requires self-sacrifice. You know, you go back to that little girl, perhaps who was heading toward a busy street, the deep end of the pool, or the cliff's edge. You intervene. What do you immediately become? You're a hero. You intervene in someone's life spiritually. And in 90% of the occasions, what do you become? You're the villain. You are the villain. You are the bad guy. You're too judgmental. You're hypocritical. You're meddling. You're sticking your nose where it does not belong. Why don't you mind your own business? You're too harsh. You're too insensitive. Oh, to love our brothers enough to get involved. And realize that in actual fact, we're the ones who might end up walking away more damaged because of what will be slung our way. Oh, to turn back a wanderer from his or her wandering. In many cases, many instances, requires a high level of self-sacrifice. We must love much. We must love much. If ever we're to be used of the Lord. To turn a wanderer back to the way. Love much. Exude patience and compassion. Have a tough, thick skin. Because you know as well as I do what might come back the other way. Because when a wanderer is in that kind of deplorable spiritual condition, they have morphed into soon touchy. And you touch it, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it. And the easy thing is to do what? Come on now. What's the easy thing to do? Let it be. Or let Brian deal with it. There's the thing. Let Brian deal with it. Uh, But I'm not going to involve myself in that mess. I'm not going to try to speak truth and bring clarity into that situation because I know it's a lose-lose, and I want no part of it. Oh, my friend, turning back a wanderer requires self-sacrifice. Number nine, here, here, okay, it gets really good now. There is forgiveness for wanderers. Yeah, the verses again in their entirety. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Does it get any better than that? Are you wandering? Maybe just a little. Maybe a lot. Perhaps you're allowing your mind to indulge in a secret fantasy world that takes you off. It inhibits your prayer life and practice of spiritual disciplines. And you know all is not well with the soul. Perhaps you are downright careless with your tongue. Gossiping backbiting your daily diet. Perhaps you're overrun by selfish ambition. Pride continually rears its ugly head and you give in to it. And everything is orchestrated in terms of how does this make me look? How does this make me appear to others? Perhaps you are living for the temporal, the now, and the material. They have you in their grip. 
Perhaps you are in a relationship that you should not be in. You should not be there. It might not even be sexual. It might not even have, have, have advanced to that stage. But it might be in the beginnings, either in the corridors of the church or on Facebook or on the texting or whatever. But it is a relationship that simply should not exist. Perhaps you're self-absorbed. You have your unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. And as a result, oof, off you've gone. There's the point of reference, the Lord Jesus, the truth. And there you've strayed. You need to hear this. You need to hone in on that last statement in the verse in the entire book that when we turn back from our wandering, it covers a multitude of sins. I think James has Psalm 51 in view. Again, a psalm written by David after he had sinned in unparalleled fashion. God's abundant mercy blots out our multitude of transgressions multitude of transgressions. There is hope extended to the wanderer. There are terms of peace offered to the wanderer. There is unbelievably mercy, unbelievable mercy and forgiveness offered to the wanderer. And it is all presented on the basis of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a sacrifice. God laid our sins on him. He was a willing priest. He bore cheerfully those sins. And he was an unimaginable, this is a precious truth, advocate. He acknowledged our sins to be his. And as he hung upon Calvary's cross, he paid the penalty in full, full and final for our sins, our transgressions, our iniquity, whereby when we look to the Son, oh, the abundant mercy that blots out every transgression. But here now the tenth point. We've arrived at the end. Number ten. Repentance is the way back from wandering. Repentance is the way back from wandering. Three simple steps. Don't miss these, especially, especially if this is speaking directly to you where you are this day before the Lord. Three simple steps of repentance. The first is confess. Stop blaming your circumstances. Stop blaming your spouse. Stop blaming the church. Stop blaming anything other than yourself. If you are in a spiritual condition right now that can only be described as wandering, whether you have drifted far or you're still near, it's irrelevant. You must come to grips with the fact that the only reason why you are where you are is you. You are the only reason. You are where you are. It is the result of your own spiritual neglect. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Confess it. 
Get open with the Lord about it and acknowledge it. Second step, grieve over it. See your wandering as a rejection of the Lord Jesus. The story is told long ago, not so long ago, I don't know. The story is told of a young woman raised in a very lowly household, very lowly, backward household. Applied herself to her studies at school. Uh, won a scholarship in her senior year for a, for a local university and went off to the college and applied herself to her studies and did wonderfully. Graduation day arrived and to her sheer horror, who, who, who showed up at her graduation? Her parents. She had charted the course. She had distanced herself from her humble beginnings. And now on this special day, her graduation, who stood there but her parents in regards to whom she was filled with embarrassment and therefore distanced herself from them. Okay, now we can empathize with that, can't we? Being on either end of it. And we can certainly begin to enter into the pain that those parents must have felt. That's the way in which we must see our wandering. You see, again, in the first instance, it isn't a wandering from the church. It isn't a wandering from other believers. It is those things, but not in the first instance. It isn't a wandering from responsibilities or duties. It is a wandering from a divine person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a conscious rejection of him. Oh, grieve over it, my friend. And understand, see something of how it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Third step, plead. Here is your plead. Psalm 51. We've already made reference to it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Did you get them? You confess, you grieve, and you plead. There you have it. Ten blanks. Did you get them all? Here's number 11. This sort of came to me earlier as we were singing. Prayer is the way to prevent wandering. Prayer is the way to prevent it. And it is precisely what we're going to do. Chris is going to lead us in a song in which we pray this very thing. Here's a stanza. I'll close in prayer and then we'll sing it. But here's the stanza. Prayer is the way to prevent wandering. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness, like a fetter, to chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts. Above. Our Heavenly Father, we do now come into your presence with prayerful hearts, mindful of all that you have accomplished on our behalf through your beloved Son, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, mindful of the great gift that you have poured out upon us, the gift of your Holy Spirit, who indwells each and every one who belongs to you, who claims the name of Christ. And we pray now that by that Spirit you would teach us. Uh, capture our judgment this day. Capture our affections.
and impress all that we have heard deeply upon the heart. Bring salvation where there is of yet lostness. Bring peace where there is a disturbed conscience. We pray that you would disturb where perhaps there is too much apathy. We pray that in all things as you work in our midst, you would do so for the furtherance of your kingdom and for your eternal glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.